From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. We're revisiting a conversation with Melissa Murray, a law professor at NYU and leading expert on the regulation of sex and sexuality. She's also the author of numerous articles, including Marriage as Punishment. We discussed the legal institution of marriage and considered the victories and setbacks in the fight for marriage and non-marriage equality. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Professor Murray, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. A lot of your scholarship revolves around the issue of marriage under the law. And marriage, as we know, means many different things to many different people. So I wonder if you can just start us off by giving us a working definition of marriage as a legal construct. So marriage as a legal construct typically refers to the joining of two people in a union that is recognized by the state. And so that's a critical portion. So, And it distinguishes civil marriage from, for example, religious marriage in that the state recognition of the union is paramount. So individuals can be married for religious purposes, but the idea of civil marriage is really about the state recognizing you as a unit. And um, the state will regulate your entry into civil marriage, and it can regulate your exit from it. So the laws of divorce and whatnot. And that's basically the working definition. It's pretty straightforward. And what types of benefits and responsibilities come along with marriage? So the responsibilities are quite significant. Historically, spouses were understood to have certain reciprocal obligations the wife's legal identity upon marriage was merged into her husband under whose protection, wing, and cover she did everything. So the husband was understood to be the public face of the marriage, was understood to provide economic and physical protection to the wife. And in response, her reciprocal obligations included caring for the home, the private sphere, performing these kinds of domestic duties for her husband and other kinds of domestic duties, namely sex, were expected to be furnished as well. And so those were the traditional duties that husbands and wives owed to each other. Modernly, um, wives are no longer obligated to submit to sex with their husbands. We've eliminated the marital rape exemption in most jurisdictions, although there are still differing penalties and different procedures for prosecuting rape in marriage. But for the most part, the duties are sort of not necessarily enforceable at law, but we understand marriage to require both parties to engage in a kind of reciprocal caring for one another, financial commingling is expected. And the benefits that you get from the government are considerable. So there are a set of legal defaults that attend marriage that actually make it pretty easy for married people to do certain things. If you die without a will and you are married, your spouse is the person who will inherit your property. Absent a marriage, you would actually have to have a will to designate the property going to like a romantic partner or a longtime partner. Otherwise, it would go to your next of kin, usually a biological family member. So in a sense like that, marriage provides a set of government defaults that married people opt into. And then there are these sort of other kind of norms of marriage that aren't necessarily enforceable um, in all respects, but are attendant to the marital state itself. 
Well, I want to come back to the benefits and responsibilities as you've problematized them in your work. The first thing you talked about was the difference between civil marriage and religious marriage. And that's somewhat of a unique factor about marriage is that it exists in the religious realm and also as a legal institution. Can you talk about any other types of institutions that we know of that have this type of hybrid nature? Well, off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. I'm I'm sure that there are ones that are hybrid. In the United States, though, it's not really so much that civil marriage and religious marriage are distinct because in most cases, jurisdictions will recognize marriages that are performed for a religious purpose as a civil marriage. So there's actually quite a lot of overlap. And it's one of the reasons why the arguments that existed before marriage equality came online really focused around the idea that allowing same-sex marriage would really change the nature of religious marriage. And a lot of people didn't understand that, but it kind of makes sense when you think about the fact that often the state simply just accepts a religious marriage as valid for purposes of state recognition of marriage. So the Protestant church, for example, clergy are always authorized to perform civil marriages. Like So a religious marriage actually becomes a civil marriage for that purpose. In the Catholic and Judeo tradition, it's a little more distinct because there are actually very sort of defined rules and regulations for religious marriage, not so much in the Protestant tradition. And sort of inherent in the religious definition of marriage are these gender roles that you mentioned. Can you talk a little bit about the kinds of roles that are enforced by marriage and why it's a problem when the state is charged with enforcing these roles? Well, historically, marriage came with very clearly defined and gendered roles for men and women. The husband was the provider, the wife was the mother, and became sort of the person who supervised the home, but she also did it um, in sort of subordination to the husband who was the head of the family. Modernly, we don't necessarily enforce those kinds of roles as a matter of law, but as a matter of custom, they are actually quite prominent, even in marriages that profess to be rather egalitarian in the division of household labor. And again, these household or marital roles are often buttressed by just the way things are in the world. I mean, so the idea that a husband would be the principal breadwinner um, may actually be buttressed by the fact that there's a significant gender wage gap that means women make less than men. Um, the fact that women are often responsible for family caregiving, whether um, by choice or by custom, also buttresses both the wage gap and the fact that husbands are often seen as breadwinners. So there's kind of a mutually constitutive and reinforcing role that goes between law and the norms on the ground. So to some extent, the norms are shaped by law, but the law also reflects the norms. And from what you're saying, it sounds like the norms and the law around marriage has changed quite a bit over the last several generations. Surely this is not the same marriage our grandparents or even our parents might have known. Other than including same-sex couples, which we'll come back to, how have laws and norms around heterosexual marriage changed? Well, so one really clear change is allowing exogamy, racial exogamy, for example. So traditionally, marrying a person outside of your race was not only verboten, in many jurisdictions, it was a crime. Obviously, it's no longer a crime, and it hasn't been since 1967 when the Supreme Court decided Loving versus Virginia. But you know, this is another way in which the law has changed, but maybe the norm hasn't changed that much. So even though Loving versus Virginia happened in 1967, 
the rates of racial exogamy are pretty low. And if you like, again, you know, it's very rare for people to marry outside of their races, although this is changing a lot. Um, but black and white couplings are especially rare and other kinds of interracial couplings are more likely to happen. And so again, the law is different. And it's changed a lot since our parents or grandparents age, but maybe the norm is sort of slowly catching on. Marriage has also changed in the kinds of roles that women might take on, um, which is to say that historically, women were pretty much confined to the home and hearth and the care of children. Today, women, I think on the large part, remain the primary caregivers of young children, there are quite a number of working mothers, as you know, and that's something that's very different. Then, of course, the advent of divorce has really altered the nature of marriage and, again, made it clear that this is an institution that's supposed to augment and enhance your life. And if it isn't, there are options for exit. Well, coming back to loving for a second, uh, that was the case uh, in Virginia that found that um anti-miscegenation laws were unconstitutional. And you have a really interesting article about the complicated legacy of loving. Can you talk about how that change in the criminal law had trickle-down effects and other sort of regulatory mechanisms? Sure. So the central thesis of that article is that law can change, but changing norms is much harder. And often, even as laws change, you can find other ways that the legal system may try to reinforce the norm before it's actually jettisoned completely. And so in Loving versus Virginia, in 1967, the Supreme Court ruled that laws prohibiting interracial marriage were unconstitutional. And so my question was, well, does that change um, the way that individuals regarded interracial marriages? Just because you allow them, does that mean people sort of take up of them immediately? Probably not. And in fact, what I found was that um, even though the marriage laws had changed and permitted interracial marriage. There were other legal mechanisms for signaling antipathy towards interracial marriage beyond criminal prohibitions on interracial marriages. So, for example, I found a number of custodial cases, especially in the South, where those were the last jurisdictions to um, have bans on interracial marriage. But in the South, white mothers often lost custody of their white children when they subsequently married a man of a different race, particularly if it was an African-American man. And courts never said that their decisions to remove custody from the mother to the white father were based on clear concerns about the race of the new stepfather, but they offered a lot of discussion about um, interracial marriages and the deleterious effects that it might have. So while they weren't saying we're removing this child because of the mother's subsequent remarriage to a person of the, another race, they talked about the alienation that children might feel growing up in an interracial household, being estranged from family members who are white now that they were part of an interracial household, and the difficulties that they might have. And again, None of this was prohibited. And so courts could talk about a wide range of things. Um, the fact that interracial couples were probably slightly unstable and therefore the mother needed to focus on her marriage to this new African-American husband and didn't need the distraction of her children in the way. And so it was better for the children to be given to the father 
for primary custody. So these were other ways of clearly communicating to white women that marrying outside of your race was still a problem, even if the Supreme Court had formally dismantled um, the most robust legal impediment to interracial marriage. I think any white woman living in one of these jurisdictions who saw this happen to someone else would think twice about getting into an interracial relationship. And that was the point. It's a really fascinating story and one that's one that's often overlooked. Another crime that you uh, highlight that is no longer in use is the crime of seduction, which, again, feels quite apropos on Valentine's Day. Can you just describe briefly what was the crime of seduction? Seduction laws were in place in about 35 U.S. jurisdictions um, at the turn of the century, so incredibly, incredibly common. And it was basically a crime that punished men for having sex with women, usually chaste women who had never had sex before. And the idea was they had gotten these women to have sex with them by promising them that they would later marrying them. So the idea was, you know, come on, come on, let's do this. You know, we're going to get married anyway. Let's like, this is sort of just a down payment. And she would have sex with him and then he would never actually marry her. And so this was a way for the families of young women and young women themselves to actually take this rake who had defiled their daughter or sister and make him do right by her. And so there were such interesting moments where the sheriff would be sent out to find this man and they would bring him to the courthouse and he would be arraigned and charged with the crime of seduction. But the interesting part was the judge would ask him, you know, how do you plead to this? And, you know, he would say he was either guilty or innocent. But then the judge would say something like, do you want to marry her? And if he said yes, the crime of seduction would go away. The prosecution would stop. And instead of having a criminal trial, the judge would instead perform a wedding. And he would marry the woman and this man who had defrauded her, essentially. And the idea was that the crime, the criminal charges were sort of suspended. If he left her, if he did something like he didn't provide for her, if he left her alone with their family, if they had one, then they could reinstate the prosecution. And so in a way, marriage was the punishment for this crime. And marriage was understood as a way of disciplining both of them. Um, you know, their sexuality would be channeled into the productive avenue of marriage. I think also this crime was understood to be one that really could be deleterious to society at large. Um, if young women were defiled and left to their own devices, um, who knows what they could get into. Um, prostitution, a life of vice, this was a way of bringing both the woman and the man back into the fold and into a socially acceptable sexual relationship. And what was the role of the woman? Did she simply have to accept this punishment as well as the man? Or did she have any agency at all? In many cases, she wanted the marriage. Because again, you have to understand at the turn of the century, women had very few options for making a living for themselves if they were not married. You know, There's a really terrific case from the 1880s that says that for men, marriage is simply a chapter in the book of his life. For a woman, it is the epic of her life. So marriage really loomed large in the lives of women. And a woman who was sexually defiled, who was sexually compromised, had very slim prospects for subsequently marrying. So a woman didn't undertake this prosecution lightly. If her father or her brother or family instigated this kind of prosecution, they wanted her to get married and she was going to get married because they were basically making it known that she had been debauched and there would be very little for her to come back to if this didn't work out. 
This is quite a commentary on the status of women's bodies under the law. (laughs) But the crime of seduction is no longer in use. But you say that there is a legacy from these sorts of cases uh, in the role, the disciplinary role that marriage plays. Can you say a bit about the legacy of these seduction cases and marriage as punishment? Sure. So you're right. These seduction laws are no longer on the books in most jurisdictions. They fell out of favor around the 1920s. But interestingly, you see the role that marriage plays in lots of ways. So I think in 2015, just after the court decided Obergefell versus Hodges, there was a case out of Texas where a young man had been um, arrested on burglary or um, theft charges. And um, when he came before the judge to be arraigned, the judge asked him about his life. He had this girlfriend. He had just gotten this job, and there were prospects for advancement. And he did not want to go to jail because if he went to jail, he would lose this terrific job that he had. And the judge said, well, that's fine. You don't have to go to jail, but I don't like that you're shacking up with your girlfriend. I'll let you out of jail. I won't send you to jail as long as you marry her. And the guy was just like, all I wanted to do was keep my job. <laughs> and the judge is like you can keep your job, but you've got to marry her too. Like, and, and again, it was clear the judge sort of saw marriage and this job together as critical for shaping this young man's life and getting him on the right path. And I have argued in my writing that, you know, we cannot divorce marriage and our sort of rosy, flowery understanding of marriage or the romantic side of marriage from this disciplinary aspect. Marriage is a form of sexual regulation. And, you know, I've argued that there have been historically two principal forms of sexual regulation. We regulate sex that we find really offensive through the criminal law. So prostitution, uh, rape, domestic violence, lewdness, all of that gets regulated under the criminal law. But we also regulate sex through marriage law by prescribing these kinds of roles, by expressing what we think appropriate behavior between married people is. And these two domains, marriage and the criminal law, are mutually reinforcing. And often the requirements for entry to marriage, you know, the idea that you cannot marry your brother, you cannot marry more than one person, all of those things are reinforced by criminal laws that prohibit the same conduct. So it's not just that you can't marry your brother. It's a crime to have sex with your brother. It's not just that you can only marry one person. Polygamy and bigamy are crimes. Historically, it wasn't just that you were to marry someone of the same race. It was a crime to marry outside of your race. So all of these things were sort of backed up. And criminal law really was family law's muscle for maintaining and defining what the ideal of marriage was. Probably the biggest shift in the understanding of marriage and the regulation of sex in our my lifetime has been around same-sex marriage. And here again, as you say, there's a interplay between the criminal law and marriage law. Yes. Where first you had the decriminalization of homosexuality and homosexual acts, uh, and then the extension of marriage to same-sex couples. You mentioned Obergefell. Can you just briefly say what that case found? So Obergefell is a 2015 decision, very famous decision, in which the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage, said that the right to marry included the right to marry a person of the same sex. And I should say, while I support the outcome in Obergefell and I support marriage equality, I think this is a terrible, terrible, terribly reasoned decision. Justice Kennedy wrote the opinion for the court, and he's written all of the court's primary gay rights opinion. So he wrote in Romer versus Evans in 1996. He wrote Lawrence versus Texas in 2003. 
United States versus Windsor in 2013, and then um, Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015. But his rhetoric in the Obergefell decision is really jarring and really shocking and presents a really strong contrast to Lawrence versus Texas, the 2003 case that decriminalized same-sex sodomy. In Lawrence, Justice Kennedy and the majority say that same-sex sodomy can no longer be a crime, but they're very clear that they are not necessarily making any pronouncements about whether people in same-sex relationships are eligible for civil marriage. In fact, Justice Kennedy goes to great lengths to sequester the question of same-sex marriage from the question of decriminalization. And that's actually a really interesting prospect because it's one of the first moments where you have behavior that was criminal becoming decriminalized, but not being made eligible for marriage. I mean, it's a very strong contrast to Loving where, you know, on day one, the Lovings are criminals in Virginia, and then the Supreme Court come in and decide their case, and suddenly they are part of a recognized marriage, right? They go from being outlaws to in-laws with the stroke of the Supreme Court's pen, right? That's not the case in Lawrence versus Virginia. John Gettys Lawrence and Tyrone Garner go from being criminals in Texas to being non-criminals who are not married, right? There's no sort of easy translation from criminal law to marriage in Lawrence versus Texas. And that's really interesting because it suggests that there is a sort of weird moment where same-sex couples are outside of the regulation of criminal law, but are not yet subject to regulation under the laws of marriage. They're not eligible for marriage. So they're in this sort of weird space where sex isn't really regulated or is only lightly regulated by law. And that was really the promise and sort of possibility of Lawrence versus Texas. But almost immediately, the decision began to be talked about as a way station on the road to same-sex marriage. So from 2003 until 2015, Lawrence was basically just, you know, we were just chipping away until we got to the decision that would be Obergefell versus Hodges. And when Justice Kennedy decides Obergefell, he makes clear that the possibility of a life that is neither criminal nor marital it's not really a great life at all. His decision in Obergefell sort of does the most to prioritize marriage as the normative ideal of adult intimate life. He says marriage is the most profound relationship you could ever get into. There's no relationship that could be more important. It's where two people become bigger and greater than what either of them could be by themselves. And then this is the part that I think is really jarring. He says that marriage satisfies the fear that you will wake up and call out in the dark only to find that you are alone. I mean, it's kind of this <laughs> odd Bridget Jones moment <laughs> where, you know, Justice Kennedy says, like, the unmarried sort of live their lives worried that they'll be found dead in their apartments, half eaten by wild dogs. So my argument about Obergefell is basically that it's a really terrible slant on life outside of marriage. And it's not one that people naturally subscribe to. There are lots of people who live very full lives outside of marriage. There are lots of people who think their most important and profound relationships are not with another adult, but maybe with a child or with a parent. And the idea that marriage is the most profound institution and relationship you could have really discredits those other kinds of kinship relationships and really discredits opportunities for life outside of marriage. And I think it's not just a rhetorical move. It actually has constitutional consequences. Like you could imagine going forward a public hospital saying that they will deny assisted reproductive technology to unmarried persons. And that would probably a be a defensible choice because you could rely on Justice 
Kennedy's language in Obergefell to say that, yeah, you're right. Marriage is so profound and it's the best place to raise children that it would make sense for a state hospital to restrict their use of assisted reproductive technology to only married people. And Obergefell would furnish the grounds for doing that. And so I think this is an opinion that did a lot for a lot of people. And I think there are better ways that it could have been written, um, ways that emphasize that the exclusion from marriage was really about antipathy for homosexuality and treating same-sex couples as second-rate citizens rather than as a peon to marriage. And this idea that there is nothing better in life than being someone's in-law. Well, it brings to mind the the sort of split within the LGBT community and the activist community in the strategizing around what should be the next battleground for LGBT rights. Right. There were a number of folks who didn't think that marriage was necessarily the goal that should be sought primarily, in part because it's sort of a paternalistic institution by definition, but it was seen as an important battleground for social justice. Why do you think marriage has played that role as a battleground for social justice and a tool for oppression in some cases? So you're referring to the Stoddard and Edelbrick debate, which I, I think is a great place to come back to. Um, you know, so they had this really intense debate about what should be the priority of the gay rights movement. And Paula Edelbrick was really clear, marriage is not always a force for liberation. Like when was marriage ever liberating? And you know, I think we would do well to remember that. I will say one way in which marriage is liberating is that when you are married, you have the benefit of all of those legal defaults. You don't have to have a will. You don't have to have powers of attorneys to sort of negotiate who comes and visits you in the hospital. It's all a legal default and it's all easily recognizable. And so in that sense, there is something freeing about marriage. And it's perfectly understandable why same-sex couples would have wanted access for that as a way to structure intimate life. That said, why is marriage so important beyond those particular benefits? I, I think part of it is that we live in a society where marriage is understood as an indicia of citizenship. You know, one of the things that marked slaves as slaves was their ineligibility for marriage. So the idea that you cannot get married and cannot have your marriages recognized by the state is a clear indication of your second class status as a citizen. The other thing I think, though, is worth thinking about is that marriage really serves a role in modern U.S. society because we no longer live, if we ever did, live in a society where there is an active and functioning welfare state. We don't have the same kinds of social supports that other established democracies have. And in fact, marriage actually performs a lot of those functions for us. You know, in other systems, there's health care, subsidized health care from the government. There's subsidized care to parents for the care of their children, whether in state-sponsored daycare or other kinds of programs that are available to families. We don't have any of that in the United States. What we do have is marriage as a vehicle for privatizing the dependency of children and vulnerable family members. I don't think we can think about why marriage is so important and why people fought for this right so intensely without thinking about all of the ways in which our society is set up to privatize dependency and specifically to privatize it through the family. In the 1990s, when there was the welfare reform movement, part of that reform movement was marriage promotion among the poor. Like if you want to get yourself out of poverty, the best thing to do is to align yourself with another person and pool your incomes and share your resources through marriage. The idea that 
we need more marriage, I think really comes from a kind of economic anxiety that suggests that life outside of marriage is economically precarious and unstable. And it often is, but not because we're not married, but because we really don't have lots of ways for the government to provide and subsidize the kinds of things like healthcare um, that are common in other established democracies. Well, it's interesting to think about all of the different ways in which marriage functions in our society, plays different roles between the government and the governed. And as you said, it's sort of an interplay of criminal law, marriage law, norms, but also religion. And so I think one of the most important recent developments has been around religious belief and specifically religious refusals. Obviously, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case comes to mind. Do you want to talk about that new battleground in the regulation of marriage? Actually, I think, you know, you could really relate this to my earlier discussion of what happened after Loving versus Virginia and the shift in antipathy for interracial marriages, just moving to the custodial domain. Um, Religious refusals, the idea that someone can say, you know, my religion means that I cannot either provide goods and services for your same-sex marriage or I can't issue you a license, as the case may be, because my religion views same-sex marriage as an abomination. Um, This was always going to happen. I mean, you could have seen the writing on the wall. This has happened in so many other domains, um, specifically abortion. And it typically arises in these places where there's deep contestation over norms and roles, often gender roles. So, you know, one way to understand abortion is as a contest over what kind of gender roles will prevail. Will it be a role where women can sort of negotiate um, when and the the timing and tenor of whether or not they will be mothers or whether that will be imposed on them by the state? And, you know, that sort of deep conflict over gender roles, I think, naturally allowed for the rise of these religious refusals, both in the context of contraception and in the context of of abortion. And it was not surprising at all to me that you would see this also arise in the context of same-sex marriage. I mean, if there are two people of the same gender in marriage, then the whole idea of marriage as a crucible for how we practice gender and perform gender really gets disrupted. And that's a big part of the anxiety about same-sex marriage, whether we choose to admit it or not. The idea that there will not be a mother and father modeling these traditional gender roles in a same-sex marriage. In fact, they may completely decide to eschew traditional roles in in favor of something more egalitarian, um, something that might be viewed by some people as more disruptive to the social order. And so it's not surprising that you have these religious refusals. Um, The question, of course, is, in a community such as ours that's fostered on not just religious pluralism, but a broader ethic of pluralism, can you allow individuals to impose their own vision of morality and the good life on other people who are also trying to live by their own understanding of morality and what it means to have a good life? Well, where do you see this issue going next? What do you think is going to be the next frontier for marriage? The next frontier to marriage, I mean, we'll again see a reprise of what happened this summer in Masterpiece Cake Shop. So Masterpiece Cake Shop was a case about whether or not there was a collision between norms of equality and norms of religious liberty and and whether a Christian evangelical could rightly, under the First Amendment, refuse to provide goods and services to a same-sex couple for 
the celebration of their wedding. The court, and Justice Kennedy wrote this opinion, um, never actually squarely addressed that question, um, sort of punted on it. And so the substantive issue remains and I think will loom large and is not going away. So we will see another case. I think the next really obvious question is if we can have marriage between two men and two women, what's to say that we can't have marriage between more than two people? So there was already a case in Utah, Bruman versus Brown, which was challenging Utah's law prohibiting um, non-marital cohabitation. And it was seen as a kind of precursor to a legal challenge to laws prohibiting polygamy. And I think that might very well be the next frontier. Well, I appreciate all of your insights on on marriage and the law. And I guess I'll just ask you one question to close. What's the best argument for getting married, given all these (laughs) dimensions to the institution? I wonder what's why would you recommend? It's Valentine's Day. I mean, I think you get married because you love someone. You want to share your life with someone. And I have no problem with that. You know, I'm married and have been happily married for almost 15 years now. But my whole point was don't get married blindly. Like recognize that when you do so, you're sort of buying into a system of state regulation. That state regulation has often come with defined roles. And if you want to structure a more egalitarian marriage, um, you're really sort of coming up and butting up against those norms a lot. I mean, I found this in my own marriage. And I think understanding what marriage has been historically has helped me and my husband to sort of renegotiate the terms of marriage so that it does feel more egalitarian, that it doesn't feel like we're sort of buying into what it means to be a husband and what it means to be a wife. And I think we're modeling a more egalitarian model for the little people who live with us. Well, thank you very much, Professor Murray. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Happy Valentine's Day. Thanks very much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate us, and tweet at ACLU with feedback. We appreciate your input and we'll be sure to read every message. Till next week, peace. Thank you.